Surrealism, the ability to dream, the ability to think through your four walls that surround you, is the way out of you know these situations of entrapment or imprisonment that we've all been dealing with. And I guess that's the kind of beauty and this kind of surrealist focus, the beauty and the dream element. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. At long last, the 59th Venice Biennale has officially thrown open its doors this week. The Biennale is always a big event for the art world. The 2022 edition may be even more anticipated than usual. Because of the pandemic, it was delayed a year, the first time that that has happened since World War II. And it emerges in a moment of global turmoil and uneasiness, when everyone is wondering how art may respond to the challenges of the present. The Artnet News team was, of course, on the scene last week for the Biennale previews, cranking out coverage from around Venice that you can find on the site, including reports from the many national pavilions. But as listeners of The Art Angle will know, the big event of the Biennale is the main show, curated this year by New York-based Italian art curator Cecilia Almani. You know her already because she was on the podcast a few weeks ago to talk about her vision. And now, the whole art world gets to see whether she pulled it off. The exhibition carries the dreamy title, The Milk of Dreams, and it is full of dreamlike images, references to myth and magic, beasts and cyborgs, and mystery. It is notable in being almost entirely composed of women or gender nonconforming artists. This Biennale is also notable for how it rethinks the past. Normally a survey of new trends in art, this year the Biennale includes five special mini-exhibitions, or shows within the show, that look at how female figures from the past explore the themes of the Milk of Dreams. In effect, Alamani is writing a new art historical timeline to insert her work into. There's a lot to talk about in this ambitious and complex Venice Biennale. To do so, we have assembled a panel of very smart people who were in Venice for the previews, including Art Angle mainstay Ben Davis, the national art critic here at Artnet News, together with Emmanuel Balagan and Barbara Calderon, both of whom are writing about aspects of the 2022 Biennale for the site. Here's what they had to say. Today on The Art Angle, we're going to be talking about the Venice Biennale, which just opened in Italy. And specifically, we're going to focus on the main, much-anticipated exhibition at the Venice Biennale, which is called The Milk of Dreams, and curated by the New York-based Italian curator, Cecilia Alemani. To do this, I wanted to do something a little bit different, because it's a large and complex show, and it would be foolhardy to say that just a few days passing through a show like this that you had seen everything. I know that I'm still thinking about what it all means, and I'm joined here by two critics who are also writing about the Biennale in various capacities for Artnet News, and we're going to try and bring together our different perspectives on the show and see if it comes out as something greater than the sum of our various parts. So I'm joined by Emmanuel and Barbara. Please introduce yourself. Thanks, Ben. My name is Emmanuel Balogan. I'm based between London and other parts of Africa, like Lagos. Right now, I'm in Senegal. I'm a writer, critic. Looking forward to speaking with you. Hi, my name is Barbara Calderon. I'm an art critic based in New York City, and I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Ben. So as I said, this is a very large and complex show. It's a very highly anticipated show. It's closely watched as a statement about what art is internationally now. So I guess I just wanted to start out by asking you, what were your expectations in advance about the show? So 
a lot of maybe the rumblings in my circles. There was a fear that there would be a lot of tokenism in the show because of how it was widely promoted as, you know, a revisionist show that was kind of trying to recenter the woman artist. And of course, this is absolutely necessary in so many ways, but it tends to be done kind of inelegantly or sometimes can feel heavy-handed when these type of things are promoted in this way. So I guess there was that fear, but from my perspective, it was anything but tokenistic. I was completely impressed with the curatorial rigor and the caliber and monumentality of the works that were chosen. Emmanuel, did you have any of the same fears or what were you expecting? I can't really say what I was expecting. I say I went there with a lens to look for African artists or artists from the African diaspora, just because that tends to be where I focus on theoretically. And I went there with a fully open view in terms of, you know, engaging with everything. And I think what struck me was the haptic experiences, the physical experiences, the interactivity, the experiential, having to look at art in that way, as opposed to purely sort of visual or physical. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of play a lot of works that are quite fun, which isn't really what I tend to be lured to. So I'd say that that's really what I took away from it, a multiplicity of ways to dream. Yeah, it's a dreamy show. It's interesting you say fun because I still feel like it has a very somber tone. I feel like it's very much about surrealism and particularly, uh, I don't know how you want to put it, but a feminine legacy of surrealism. Specifically, it incorporates a lot of historical surrealist work or surrealist adjacent Mm. work by women artists who are a little outside of the center of this realist constellation. There's a lot of apocalyptic stuff and there's a lot of work that is kind of moody, I'd say. It's not a conceptual art show. There's some research-driven displays in it, but it's not a conceptual art show. Barbara, did you have the same playful feeling of it? I wouldn't say playful. I think maybe what you're kind of describing is the experimental nature of maybe the mediums. But I definitely agree that it was very somber, especially relating to the body. There was so much body in the show. And I want to say like carnal-esque. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of human animal stuff. There's a lot of humans becoming animals. There's a lot of people with like tentacles bursting out of them. There's a lot of images of the body broken or fragmented. It's a big show to see. Before we get into the specifics of what we liked or didn't like, I think it's interesting for people to know and I talked about this a little bit in our podcast from a couple of weeks ago about the Whitney Biennial. What my strategy for seeing a show like this is, do either of you have an approach to trying to make sense of it all? I think my approach is really just to see as much as I can, to be really open and not try to compare things against each other and more just analyze what the work is doing. And then obviously looking at the kind of sociopolitical environment or geographic nature of where the work comes from. That for me is really important. So, you know, a lot of works I, I personally wouldn't have put together, but I could appreciate them for what they're doing. There are other works that I would say were fun in a different sort of way, even sort of color choice or subject matter. So I'd say, you know, there were some lighthearted works that were what I would describe as fun. Even the film works, there are some that were dealing with quite tough issues, but were totally irreverent or, you know, disrespectful in a really fun way. Yeah. That's, I guess, me talking about what I meant was fun and playful. But yeah, in terms of my approach, it's really loose. Barbara, what about you? How did you approach the show? In approaching the show, I printed out the list of 230 or so artists in the Milk of Dreams specifically. 
And I just began highlighting the artists that I recognized, people that I love, people that I knew from history. I kind of like used a bunch of different highlighters just to really tease out who I did know, maybe the Americans also. I was just trying to see like by region, but also one of the things that really stood out to me was I wanted to see how intergenerational, what the span of intergenerationality there was. So I highlighted everybody who was born after 1980. And it helped me kind of like historically situate a lot of the younger artists. That's really interesting. What did you find out doing that kind of homework? I found a lot of really young artists. and I mean, I was really surprised at how many even 1990 plus, you know, who were born after 1990. I was like, wow, that's really young to be in the Venice Biennale. But someone told me somewhere, and I didn't follow up on this, but that the Biennale used to only include only young artists. No, I didn't know that. The survey of new artists, I mean, I wouldn't say it only used to include them, but it's generally true, yeah. In my further research, it truly was an intergenerational show and it helped me kind of try and see how big that gap was. I think it's interesting to talk about yeah, age because I guess it kind of upends my understanding of age because there are some artists that I discovered whose works I would have thought would be made by an artist that was super young. And then I look at the age of where they came from and it's like, oh, wow, this work is actually by somebody who is later on in life. And I wouldn't necessarily apply their age to being at the vanguard of technology or, you know, interrogating technology in, in that way. Absolutely. And even in terms of a conceptual, Sim Nikwe is a South African artist that had the works of the Sturman. And that was by, I think, one of the youngest artists there versus Tishan Su, who's a little bit older. So yeah, age was something I noticed also. And it surprised me in different ways and the kind of elegance and the um, maturity that was being applied. I just think it's fascinating because it's also this really historical show. The age thing is pulling both directions. It's interesting to me that when you look at it, it's very young because... Another level, it's very old. There's a lot of works from other centuries in the show. Especially when Cecilia is talking about surrealism as the fulcrum and using surrealism as this historical crux to draw the threads through these connecting themes that you can really see it as you go through when you're talking about humanism, when you're talking about sex, eroticism, and then this overlap with nature. Surrealism is kind of the perfect art historical moment to be drawing through as far as what she was showing because fantastical narratives and this over-reliance on the female body continues throughout. But there's this building on it or there's this deconstructing of the whole concept of what the body can be or what the mechanics of the human can be and how that interweaves with nature. Someone said to a colleague of mine was really irate about this show and said, what is this? I come to the Venice Biennale in order to see what's new. And here's all this old stuff. And I was really turning that over my head and thinking, well, yeah, but one of the things that's new is the resurfacing of so much old stuff. Like that the kind of kaleidoscope of art history has turned a notch in the recent past. And in that new filter that appears, there's all this stuff that suddenly looks newly contemporary. So there's, for instance, I don't know if there's one of the people you were thinking of, Emmanuel, but there's a painter in the Giardini section of the Milk of Dreams main show called Ula Wigan. And she's born in 1942. And there are these small paintings of circuit boards, very concentrated paintings of digital technology, but they're all from the 60s. You know, it looks to me like somebody really looking at 
technology, through the language of abstraction in a very contemporary way. It's very sharp and crisp, but this is half a century or more old. I really enjoyed seeing the generational connections. And when you think of art history as the canon and how an artist gets to be validated, you need those generational connections. You need to be able to see what inspired what or how maybe an idea has expanded. For example, like you take Hannah Levy, who is a contemporary New York artist, and she's making these crazy metal sculptures. There's one that looks like chicken legs at the bottom, but they're like stilts with high heels. And that's in the Giardini. And then you continue to the Arsenale and you go to the seduction of the cyborg, where you see all of these antecedents who were doing engineered prosthesis from the 1920s through the 1980s. You can make that connection. And it was super cool to see that thread. It's very hard to not compare a Biennale to another one. So I think I struggled with that throughout. I felt that I was looking for a lot more. I think there was a lot of painting. I saw some very strong works, but there were some that I didn't feel as much as I had hoped I would. I'd say Miriam Khan, for me, was super important in one of my standout selections. And I think that was the depiction of womanhood that I guess I had wanted to see. Refresh my memory. What are the Miriam Khan paintings? They're quite bold situations. There's birth, there's kind of conjugal roles, there's some violence. Violence, yeah. They seem quite very angry works on what a woman. So I think seeing a woman making work in that way, in that space, it felt memorable, it felt bold, it felt critical. And I feel like there weren't many works within the show that depicted that sort of fierce depiction of emotive experiences or intimacy in that way. Unless, Barbara, you have any other artists that you wouldn't share that you felt did? I was just going to say about Miriam Khan, she has that one where it's from the perspective top over where she's on the bed. It's clearly it's a sexual position where somebody's on top of her. I thought that was rather good. <laughs> yeah, no, there were some really stunning works which depict the whole dream, the nightmare, the memories of experiences gone wrong. Or I think anybody can relate to them. What was your overall impression? You spent a couple of days in this giant show. What did you think? Good, bad, or mixed? I think it was really touching. I think there were a lot to see. And obviously, it's been a long time since we've been able to go to Vinale. It is true. It's easy to grave on a curve. You're just like, it's so nice to see all this stuff in a space again. <laughs> yeah, honestly, it was really beautiful. Barbara, what about you? Good, bad, or mixed on the overall show? Okay, overall, I'm going to say very good. I saw so many iconic works. Simone Lee just blew the whole thing up. I think that seeing her work surrounded by the Belgesayon holograph, I don't know when I'm going to be able to experience that type of pairing again. I feel like that was very huge for me. We should describe this for the listener that Simone Lay is a big presence, both literally and metaphorically, at the Venice Biennale this year. She both represents the United States and then in the Arsenale section has sculptures that bookend the show and really introduce the show. So you walk in to a chamber with this enormous sculpture brick house. People may be familiar with New York. It was a work that Cecilia Alemani commissioned for the Highland a few years ago. It's this monumental sculpture of a woman that you see right when you go in. Yeah, Simone Lee was incredible. There were so many moments, so many feelings it conjured. You had the different icons within Black history. You have the kind of indentured labor. You have the, obviously, criticism of slavery, the occupation of roles that Black communities 
are made to occupy or the roles of women in society. It was beautiful and sad. And obviously seeing these works in these materials was grand. There's no denying that. So I think it was brilliant. And, you know, everybody had something to say about it that was positive. Not one person said anything bad about it. You couldn't. I do think that we also have to think about funding and, you know, scale. Is it just by surprise that the US were able to have such a big presence? I think that should be thought about in relation to other countries. I think we, I say we in, in the other side of the Atlantic in UK, wanted a bit more from some of us, from Sonia Boyce's contribution. I think a lot of people were very proud, loved it, thought it was beautiful. You know, I like the orality of it. I think the songs, you know, the sort of five screens, really stunning, but visually a little bit underwhelming. I feel like the depiction of African artists that are being celebrated in different realms, I had hoped more from Sonia Boyce. But that's only my feeling. I'm not sure if, if everybody would agree. I guess I should say, I also have a good overall impression of the show. When I looked at it on paper, I thought that it looked almost like my ideal show. Like I'm very interested in this surrealist revival and interested in what it means. And so I was looking for some answers about that in a contemporary sense, because I think historical surrealism had a certain historical moment, a certain set of reference points. The revival of it interacts with different pressures in the present and different kinds of social situations. So I was really looking for, you know, what is this reference to? What work is surrealism and the ideas of surrealism doing in this show? And I'm not sure I found my answer to that, though. And it's unfair, I think, to maybe burden an art show with giving you answers. It maybe gives you a mood and a bunch of reference points that you can connect the dots in different ways through. But there's a lot going on in a lot of different directions in this show. Overall, pretty positive. The more I look at it and think about it, the more I wonder how coherent it is. There are these standout moments in the show that are explicitly historical. And then there are these mini exhibitions curated inside the show, five mini exhibitions on different themes, all featuring all women or female identifying artists that are almost like research projects on the occult, on women working in concrete poetry or channeling images and on the body and prosthetics as Barbara already talked about, arts that are much more explicitly technological. Either of you have a chance to spend any time in those rooms or find anything in them? I did in The Witch's Cradle, and my thoughts on that were... This is a mini-exhibition dedicated to sort of occult themes. Sure. I felt it was a bit of a bummer in terms of exhibition design. It was super dimly lit. It was kind of in a recessed space, had a dark carpet and really bad lighting. This is where a lot of the surrealist artists, Leonora Carrington, Remedios Varo... Dorothea Tanning were, and, you know, a lot of, like, what you're saying, this historical material and what was this jumping-off point for Cecilia. So a lot of them were behind a glass. And so there was this inaccessibility to the works, and that kind of was a little bit sad to me because I thought this would be a great time to have a really, like, close and intimate experience with these type of works. But that wasn't the case. Probably had to do with some sort of insurance, but... Nevertheless, <laughs> <laughs> the great unseen force at an event like this is the, the hand of the insurance man. What do you make of that historical material, Emmanuel? I didn't look at it in terms of the way you just segmented it through the, I guess, the titles segments. I can definitely shine a light on the works that I felt were, you know, dealing with historic narratives in their own way. I just, you know, make 
a kind of big case for Wusang, you know, the beautiful sort of Moby Dick revisiting and or restaging with the different characters. And it's beautiful, you know, very dark, very surrealist in nature, storytelling, different characters within the kind of ship. And similarly, Tourmaline, sort of activist filmmaker and writer that also dealt with a kind of historic narrative, a counter history of a sex worker that was put in prison in the 1830s for stealing a man's wallet. So I think, you know, history was dealt with in different ways throughout different artists' work to kind of create new histories for different people with seemingly deviant identities. So I think that notion of identity countering history came through in a lot of works. There's a real mythical vibe. There's a lot of folklore, storytelling. Magical realism. Fable, magic realism. It's interesting how the Moby Dick works into that as this work of literature that serves as a framework to inhabit, but then to open up the queer dimensions of it, the alternate histories that are already contained in that text, but maybe not at the surface. Throughout, I just noticed so much myth and Mm. storytelling and fabulation going on that that Yes, critical fabulation. That's what Tormelin calls it. I think from Sadia Hartman, philosopher Sadia Hartman, this idea of there's some histories that couldn't be recorded. So that there is an artistic project in important social project that art can fulfill is sort of filling in some of the historical gaps. And that's one work I think the fables and myths are doing. And then I think the fantastic is doing another kind of work, providing a space to imagine beyond a present that feels very dark and confining and a past that feels very burdened with um, atrocities and, and horrors. Are there specific works that we should talk about? I'll say one that really captured me was the Delcy Morelos piece called Earthly Paradise, the new work for 2022. And if you go to the center of the Arsenale space, it's not a maze, but a maze-like collection of bales of earth. And I'll tell you, it's even harder to convey than normally in this audio format, because one of the things that really captured me about this work is just the smell of it. That it has this wonderful cinnamony smell that has really burrowed its way into my brain. And I'll almost take that smell away from this biennial more than anything else in the sense (laughs) that um, it does a lot of work in terms of being a really embodied experience. You know, you really do have to be there to get what makes that work so impactful. Precious Dogo Yeoman's work as well. Mm. The closing out of the Arsenali was also just a whole experience of a room and of a landscape, right? And the viewer walking through the different pathways that are created and soil being everywhere and different vegetation growing. When you're walking in from, I think, the end of the show, it says something like, beware, butterflies are here. And so I went searching for the butterflies. And I should say, this is an installation called To See the Earth Before the End of the World that, yeah, as you say, concludes the Arsenali section. And it's just almost like a garden full of these figures, vegetation, and soundtrack, just to give a visual. Yes, yeah, something like a techno-ish soundtrack. And these butterflies, I went searching for them in the garden. There's, you know, some creeks in there and different stones. And I did find butterflies, but all of them were dead. (laughs) I wanted to see them fluttering around, but they were dead. But it was kind of pertinent, you know? (laughs) 
<laughs> Absolutely. That's an example where the size of the show works against its message for me in a way is that I kind of came to that and read it almost on first blush as the happy ending of the show that you've emerged from all this cybernetic dystopia. And there's a video shortly before that about a man who's murdered his family. It's very dark. And so I felt almost kind of liberated coming into that space, but on a closer look, yeah, you discovered that it really is full of little dead life. Beautiful dead butterflies in the stream. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> it kind of shocked me because I sort of walked into the room and I was like, oh, wow, what is this? Who is this? And then I saw your description. I was like, oh, it's breakfast work. And I was like, okay, definitely memorable for sure and a great experience. One of my favorite works is actually Mariana Simnet. It's an installation called The Severed Tale. Oh my goodness, that is such a standout of the show. Everybody was talking about it and everybody had a different opinion about it. It's incredible. I mean, I went in for four seconds and I <laughs> went out because they, <laughs> they cut something off a pig and I did not want that in my memory. <laughs> All these people were like gathered around a rat's tail, like cuddling up watching this like horrible film on a rat tail. And I was just like, I can't be a part of this. I'm sorry. <laughs> this video installation, there's red curtains leading into it, and there's a giant stuffed animal rat tail coming out. And then you go in, and there are these nook that you can <laughs> recline in that's a piece of this furry tail. And then, Emmanuel, you can describe the video. So it's set in a fetish club. So, you know, great place to be. And characters have tails and ornate costumes, and it's, you know, fantastical. There's, like, I think, some sort of almost like a dog show. They're all humans. There's people dressed as dogs. They're dressed as dogs. You know, they win a prize for, you know, being the best or the most kind of pervy dog. And um, one of the dogs wins and then, you know, throws the crown away and then goes to this alternative universe. So, yeah, I don't know. I thought it was just super fun work, really beautifully scripted. It was a story of suffering, transformation, praise in kind of, you know, dark ways. Um, this fetish gear, it did a lot for me. It's dark. And I think that's a good example where it does really feel like a contemporary surrealism to me because the feeling of it is very contemporary with this S&M theme, mm. the degradation of it, and just the overall feminist sensibility of it. It ends with this mad king whose stomach bursts open. It really does feel like a fairy tale, but it, one of the lovely things about it is it, it also does feel very like a newly generated mythological yeah. image that genuinely gets under my skin as in i think i might have nightmares about it. <laughs> i think yeah it's a different way to interrogate the, you know, the relationship between humans and animals or humans in the universe and it does it in a way where you don't leave feeling guilty or, or really questioning existential you know climate change related issues um, which you do in other places which are valid but i think it's a real skill to be able to kind of criticize humanity without serving guilt and I think that work does that very well. I can't stop talking or thinking about tourmaline work. Personally, it was a surprise, you know, walking up to it. Uh, it was in this sort of crypt. I discovered after watching it about three times that it's executive produced by Keanu Reeves, which probably explains why it was so epic in terms of the production. You know, the cutaways were just fantastic. I missed this work of art. Uh, it was in a cove. Part of why I wanted a roundtable format so that I <laughs> benefit from everybody else's footwork and that you have to go through the whole Biennale and sort of find it in this crib beyond the end of the show. That's annoying, but it's a great surprise. Both of you saw it, so describe it. It's about a kind of trans sex worker who 
is on the run. And then, you know, she has this, let's say, Black Liberation writer who kind of saves her, keeps her safe, hides her. White men are coming after her. She's wanted. She ends up getting captured. But she has these sort of premonitions or visions where she can see her downfall happening. But it also kind of has a criticism about gentrification in, in New York. And then um, reparations, queer liberation, it's almost like the crucible. I really enjoyed the work, as you can tell from my um, excitement. It's absolutely beautiful. It's also in its own contained cove. So you have to go in, it's completely dark. And in the middle, you look up and there's like this blue circular, as if you're at the bottom mm. of a well. Yeah, really you've got beautiful. three screens. And on the two left, two screens, there's, you know, water kind of rippling. Mm -hmm. Really, really, really strong piece. I think there's a lot of kind of funny lines that almost kind of touch upon black exploitation. I found it a really fun work, but also really important. At the end, there's a line that the main person is saying, and it's really empowering talking about, you know, essentially, you can be who you want to be. You can define who you want to be. This is a sort of rallying cry that you hear at the end. I think it's speaking to um, transgendered identities, to queer histories or creation of your own history and affirmation, chosen family. So I found it a really powerful work. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I did not see the work, as I said, but it sounds like it almost provides something of a summation in that line. You can be who you want to be of some of the work the surrealism is doing here. Mm. Through imagination, we can change our reality. And I think to go back mm. to something that we had talked about before, the sense of the show is both in your perspective, Emmanuel, kind of playful and in mine and Barbara's kind of the darker side of the Grimm's fairy tales, you know, if you actually read those fairy tales, they are really brutal. And I think that there is a way that these things interlock or it could be kind of like both at once. That It's about the atmosphere of dread and confinement that sort of permeates a lot of chatter now, a lot of people's sense of the present. And then fantasy is a response to that. So it kind of contains that sense, but is also containing it to try and move beyond it in different ways. I think that's absolutely true. Reality is very hard right now, living and really taking everything in. There's war all over the place. And I think in the context of surrealism, that has been the case, right? I also just wanted to kind of zoom out a little bit and talk about how the Venice Biennale, as this huge grand event, how that felt to be there, especially for me the first time I'd ever been at the Venice Biennale. You know, it's amazing to see this international collection of contemporary work that also has this historical context and, you know, much of it expressing dire, urgent, very alarming messages. But we also kind of have to acknowledge that there is a very concentrated amount of wealth in this area, especially the Vernissage. It's a completely elite class of people plus the press, you know? Well, yeah, it's the VIPs and then uh, people living in VIP poverty, as I always like to say. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, these people who are clamoring to see this work, much of it addressing extreme poverty, racism, environmental degradation, the carceral state, colonialism. I can't help but feel some sort of contradiction. Yeah. I think, Ben, you made a quote about friends of yours saying that this is, you know, where you come to see the best work or the most fresh new work. And I wouldn't say it is where you come to see the freshest new work, but I would say the conversations for me that are actually the freshest outside of Venice Biennale, maybe at other Biennales like Charger Biennale or even Dakar Biennale or Bamako Biennale, but obviously the works that are most well-produced 
and with artists that, you know, are more globally known. And there's obviously the attraction of what Venice is becoming on a kind of stylistic realm or social scene. I think that adds more and adds to its kind of charm. But in terms of criticality, I think other places are important too. I mean, that's a question I have about the surrealism as a reference here and its transformative potential. Because when you take off all the dressing, they're ultimately spectacles of luxury consumption. They're meant to be a big enough event to attract the kind of crowd who travels for art, which is generally an affluent crowd. That doesn't mean that it's not important or it doesn't actually change people's lives to be in the Venice Biennale and people that you want to root for. In some sense, I find the historical surrealist stuff very important to honor and that it's there. I do think there's a sense that the mixing of the historical work and the contemporary work is kind of a cheat to kind of like make contemporary art, which people feel is so commercial and trend driven and so on to make you actually give it a literal other context. (laughs) Here's this historically important stuff that it kind of draws on to kind of push against the overall atmosphere of art market dominance in the world today. And then a mixed opinion on the kind of trendiness of occult art. I mean, on the one hand, there's feminist kind of lens of trying to recover spaces that weren't taken seriously and were the literal places where women had like creative freedom. On the other hand, I mean, we live in a time of dire problems that need literal, just instrumental solutions. And there is a Mm. a kind of retreat Mm. into mysticism and conspiracy Mm. theories. That's a real thing. (laughs) And then to to have us talking about it in a solely arty context about its kind of aesthetic allure to me, I do wonder Mm. is like, um, if we'll look back in 10 years when um, everybody has joined some kind of crazy into the world cult <laughs> when all the rich people <laughs> have consolidated cults of personality around themselves <laughs> and hold themselves in their climate bunker and we're more like oh this was the start of that you know <laughs> so I, I do yeah some questions about how it all plays out although i'm not burdening the show with having to resolve those questions i just sometimes is unnerving to me how people don't connect the dots they're just asked the question of, are we playing a game <laughs> about this stuff or do people actually believe that we will um cast magic spells in climate change. <laughs> I think that it's important because a lot of the artists in the show take like Cecilia Vicuña can be talked about in the realm of mysticism, but really she's talking about indigenous epistemologies. And so making the distinction between occult and mysticism versus other ways of looking at life, right, is important because it's not all the same thing. Mysticism and occultism has been a way to look down on other people's way of living or conception of the world, which is what a lot of surrealists were doing. They were looking at indigenous communities and the way that they drew or the way that they conceived of the beginning of the world. And they were looking to this in order to figure out how to reevaluate what things should be prioritized or what we should be looking at or valuing different systems. That's an important point. I totally agree with that point, Barbara. And I think even to follow on from that, when you look at magical realism or you look at the potency of witchcraft, voodoo in revolts, there's been, you know, histories of magic and alternative thought systems creating ways to exit situations of subjugation. We've not even touched upon the pandemic. You know, we've all been in it for such a long time. And, you know, 
surrealism, the ability to dream, the ability to think through your four walls that surround you is the way out of, you know, these situations of entrapment or imprisonment that we've all been dealing with. And I guess that's the kind of beauty in this kind of surrealist focus, the beauty in the dream element. There's so many different ways to dream and reasons why we have to. So I think it was totally appropriate to have that focus. I think surrealism and dreaming is urgent and needed. Well, those are wonderful points. And I, I think that I don't want to burden the show with having to, you know, represent anything more than being a show of really interesting stuff to work through on one level. I think at its best, these kinds of events can provide a space to make the case for taking the time to figure out how lots of different people think and find beauty and, and make sense mm. of reality, you know, possibly despite the constraints that all the stuff Barbara was talking about, about the, you know, what it actually represents as a cultural machine. We and many other people are living inside that machine, trying to navigate our way through it. And I hope that it matters, the conversations that happen. I want to thank you both for being part of this conversation. Thank you for being on The Art Angle to try and figure out what it all means with me. Thank you for thank having you. us, Ben. Yeah. It Thanks was for great. having us. <laughs> yeah, really, really great to exchange. Very enriching exchange, literally, as in I'm going to think about the show in a different way, having um, had the chance to talk to you. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sona Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.